You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. If you've ever been curious about the real or fictional worlds, those who create or what inspires, then you'll enjoy tonight's episode of Huey Tigers. The only podcast show where we take life by the tail. This is Huey Tigers. Well, I'm your host, Jared Zerf, and this is UB Tigers, the only podcast show where we take life by the tail. Most of the crew was off and away for the holidays, so I thought it might be a fun treat to visit one of my earliest episodes from a previous show. Back then, I was focused almost entirely on authors and their work, so I created in character to reflect how the people who write our favorite stories often have unusual tales of their own. I hope you enjoy. So, welcome to the show. It's uh, currently called In Character, and we interview authors about their new and upcoming works and the stories behind them. You know, because when you get down to it, authors are characters too, with their own motives, passions, and unusual quirks. Just for the folks listening in, your name is Eric Rock, and you wrote a book called Conquering the Electron, the geniuses, visionaries, egomaniacs, and scoundrels who built our electronic age. Let me ask you up front, where'd you guys come up with the title? This is a co-authored book, after all. What inspired the title, and why the focus particularly on characters, on the unusual folks involved? That's a, that's a great question. So the inspiration, you know, I'm, I, I should start by saying that I'm in this partnership. I've really just been the hack with the keyboard. Uh, my co-author, Dr. Derek Chung, really was uh, the primary man, the guy with the vision, mm-hmm. uh, and, and he had a very unique perspective. He spent an entire career at the intersection of business and science, technology, okay. and bringing technology to market, um, and he realized a couple things. The first is that all of these major inventions that have touched our lives, um, you know, they weren't created in a vacuum, and so the stories mm-hmm. of how they came to be, although they're not widely known, but they should be. They're really cool and they're really interesting, and they're a clever blend of, of ingenuity in the lab as well as good <laughs> marketing and keen business sense. Yes, and a bit of background um, politics. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as the people who, who played these roles, you know, they are, they are ready-made outstanding characters. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got... Uh, You've got these geniuses, you've got guys who are who will stop at nothing, you've got um, folks who have wonderful ideas but really no business sense, you've mm-hmm. got folks who are absolutely cutthroat marketers. And what I realize is, you know, you look through the lens of history, and what we tend to do is look upon these people as gods, or if, if less than gods, only just a little less, you know, at the very least they're imperfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, I should say at the very least they're perfect. Right, and, and, and we think of Edison as a hero, and Tesla as a hero, and, and Marconi as a hero, and, and they did these quick things, but really, when you look at their personal lives, they're just as powerful as you and I, um, and yes, finding out about that is really neat. Just reviewing Tesla's mild love affair with a pigeon. Mm-hmm. 
That um, is true. In his later years, Tesla lived alone in New York City Hotel talking to nobody but the balcony. Crazy stuff. Yeah, no, nobody with pigeons on the balcony. It, it's fascinating when you study the trajectories of their thoughts, how they engage with each other, too, particularly. I mean, they all have their own personal story, but how these intersect I found incredibly fascinating. I know the piece you saw oh, sure. was on the history of the telephone, which we'll get to when we talk about, for instance, Alexander Graham Bell and how he, in a sense, I guess, stumbled into his invention. Since we're talking about the history of the electron, we should perhaps dig a little bit earlier back to a fellow you'd want to discuss, a Galvani, who had a fascination with finding frog gonads in their legs. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's really interesting. Uh, back in the 1700s, you know, the people had identified electricity as a phenomenon. We all know the story, whether true or not, of Ben Franklin mm -hmm. flying a kite and kind of catching lightning on a key. Mm -hmm. So people knew about electricity, but they really couldn't figure out exactly what it was, where it came from, and what caused it. So in the 1700s, trying to solve that mystery was, was a large part of, um, of electronic or and electric research. Mm -hmm. So one of the earliest advances uh, came from two Italian men, uh, Galvani and Volta, uh, who in the late 1700s were both researchers and professors at major Italian universities. Mm -hmm. And they started looking at what happened when they dissected frogs. When, you know, I, I don't know how many of your listeners remember 10th grade biology, but when you're dissecting the frog, <laughs> you have to pin it down to the pan, you take mm -hmm. your scalpel and, and you start cutting it open. And what these guys were finding is as they started cutting open the frog, the frog's muscles would twitch. They were working on a metal table. Uh -huh. Right, right, and on a metal pan. Right? Yeah. They'd have a, a metal pan and then a metal pin pinning the frog down to the pan uh, and then metal cutting implements. So it became a, a huge point of debate between Galvani and Volta whether the electricity, the, the twitching, from a, a passage of electricity between these metallic instruments or if it was somehow some sort of animal electricity held inside the frog itself, like we might think of an electric eel. Right. So Galvani and Volta ended up getting into this huge debate over it. They had a falling out. They became, you know, the bitterest of enemies for the rest of their lives. It seems a and it turned out they were kind of both right in that muscles do work on electrical impulse system, as we now know, mm -hmm. and um, it is possible to pass electric current through different interfaces, like with a battery. Mm -hmm. So even though they were both correct, it ended up being a giant fight and one that eventually led Volta to create uh, the world's first battery, perfectly in an attempt to prove his friend Galvani wrong. <laughs> it's funny how the motivations behind the inventions don't always match up with the altruistic intentions we think of. Oh, sure, totally egotistical in many cases, which is pretty funny. And I, I know, I mean, from the folks you wrote about, for instance, uh, Alexander Graham Bell's father-in-law, Mr. Hubbard, there's a, a fascinating uh -huh. dynamic there as I'm reading the story between why Alexander got into and how he developed the telephone, the rivalry with Elisha Gray, although I, I can't call it a rivalry per se because Elisha wasn't aware until later on how deeply uh -huh. involved he was in this, and by then it was too late. It does unfold to me like an HBO drama would. There's all the character damage, there's the right triangle, there's the overpowering father figure. The narrative is there for a pop culture show. It's that much of a quirky bunch of characters. So let's dig into it. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm happy to tell that story. It's absolutely one of my favorites. Okay. You know, it, it's interesting. You mentioned 
uh, Alexander Graham Bell's father-in-law, Gardner Green Hubbard. I was in uh, Washington, D.C. a few months ago, and I was at the headquarters of National Geographic in the National Geographic Museum. And right in the middle of the floor, there are busts of Gardner Green Hubbard, yeah. who was the first president of National Geographic, mm-hmm. and Alexander Graham Bell, you know, lauding these guys for their work. And I just sat there, knowing this story we're about to tell, and thought, oh, man, if you guys only knew, if you only knew. Mm-hmm. We got a little plaque next to the two of them saying, here's what actually is. Uh-huh. With a tiny little yeah. picture. All right, Joe. Well, settle in. Here okay. it is. So you ask any any kid who invented the telephone, and they'll say Alexander Graham Bell. They'll they'll know it, you know. Um, but really, you know, one of the one of the aspects of conquering the electron is we try to debunk this hero worship, and sometimes that includes challenging, you know, the commonly accepted history. And when you get down to it, the reality is Alexander Graham Bell had nothing, really nothing, to do with the invention of the telephone. He was peripheral almost to it. Yeah, yeah. So his, his real his real role is something more like this. He was an accomplished musician and artist in his youth, and mm-hmm. his mother was deaf, and this inspired uh, Bell to study the nascent science of acoustics. Okay. He got to thinking about the about telegraphy, the telegraph being the, the principal longest communication tool at the time, mm-hmm. and he came up with an idea for something that he called a harmonic telegraph. Now, the, the idea behind this is, if you think about a guitar, for instance, yeah. you can play a note, or you can move your fingers up and down the fret and change the length of the string, mm-hmm. and thereby change the note that's produced. Now, those different notes come out at a different frequency, even though it's on the same string. Right. So Bell thought, huh, if you can get one string to play different notes at different frequencies, maybe you could send electrical impulses through the same string or electrical wire at different frequencies, mm-hmm. and then you wouldn't have to be stuck sending just one telegraph at a time. Mm-hmm. You could use harmonics to send lots of telegraphs on one wire all at the same time. Reducing cost, increasing volume. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't have to construct extra lines. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So he tells this idea to Gardner Green Hubbard, and he knows Hubbard, who is this really well-connected guy, knows everyone in Washington, D.C. politics. He's kind of a Brahmin of the Boston commercial scene. He knows Gardner Green Hubbard because he's actually been tutoring Hubbard's daughter. And he tells Hubbard about this idea, and Hubbard says, great, all right, I'll back you in a venture to try to come up with this harmonic telegraph. Now, as time goes by, it becomes clear that Hubbard has kind of more on his hands than, than a business venture. Mm-hmm. Mel is falling in love with his daughter. So Mel asks Hubbard for his daughter's hand in marriage. Now it's not just business that he's invested in his kid. Now it's going to be part of his family. And Hubbard had also tried taking over the telegraph business before him. So this was kind of... Yeah, that's an excellent point. Hubbard, Hubbard had been an early trust buster, or rather an early, I should say, privatizationist. I don't even know that's yeah, the word. This- an early proponent of privatizing. Uh, or, or, sorry, I shouldn't say privatizing, statizing. Basically, yeah. there's been a, a privately held monopoly for much mm-hmm. union uh, in the telegraph world before, and he wanted the, the government to take it over and, of course, to install him as the head. <laughs> as the yeah. yeah. yes, so Naturally, right. Again, not never altruism. Always, <laughs> always a little more egotism in the mix. But so anyway, Hubbard, Hubbard used his connections in mm-hmm. BC to keep the patent office on alert. And basically, what he did was he bribed the patent officer so that as soon as a telephonic patent came in, he could have his future son-in-law, Alexander Graham Bell, submit all of his own notes the same date 
and get the patent officer to timestamp it as coming in even earlier than this new telephonic invention. And then, to take that even one step farther, you know, that, that's already you know, loaded with intrigue and obviously, you know, not exactly legal. Right. Uh, he then rebribed the patent officer to let Bell come in and follow up by looking at this telephone patent that someone else had, had submitted, copying down all that guy's findings into the margins of his own submission so he could say, hey, not only was my submission in first, which wasn't true, I also came up with all the same stuff as that guy, also not true. So by the time the smoke cleared, it would appear that Bella had actually come up first with this whole telephone idea, which in reality had, had nothing to do with them and had everything to do with Hubbard's ability to kind of exert his machinations behind the scenes. Now, this patent that Bell had looked at was Alesha Gray's version, which had That's an right. acid-based one, and Bell had to invent subsequently a electromagnetic version to show, because he had a provisional patent, meaning he had to, within 12 months, prove that he could actually execute on the principle or the premise. Right. And Gray, to his discredit, ultimately congratulated Bell, if I'm not mistaken, on this whole experience, not knowing what had gone into the process at that point. You're right. To his credit, and also, unfortunately, to his downfall. Yeah. You know, people who hear that story of Bell on the telephone always ask, well, how come there, nothing was ever done about it? How come there wasn't a court case? <laughs> and in fact, there was. The doubt, yeah. Uh, the man who invented the telephone, uh, in, in most likelihood, Alicia Gray, mm-hmm. uh, he was an employee of Western Union, under contract by Western Union. Western Union, uh, Gray, and the Telegraph Giants entered into a court case with Bell Hubbard and their nascent Bell Telephone. And what ended up happening is as all this information was coming to light, Bell and Hubbard used as evidence the fact that Gray had sent this gentlemanly message congratulating Bell on having beaten him there, you know, not knowing about what had really happened. You know, and this is, of course, frustrating and a point of huge contention. And and it ended up leading, along with a number of other factors, to an out-of-court settlement in which Western Union and Gray, for economic and commercial reasons, signed away the rights to the telephone. Right. And Bell and Hubbard, as, as the winners, got to write the history, saying that they did it. You have a, a letter you've quoted in part, or excerpted in this chapter on the telephone. It's from Elisha Gray after the court case. And I think it encapsulates your book almost in a nutshell. Gray says... The history of the telephone will never be fully written. It is partly hidden away and partly lying on the hearts and consciences of a few whose lips are sealed, some in death and others by a golden clasp whose grip is even tighter. Yeah, that really does sum it up. That, that really does perfectly explain it. And you're right, not just the telephone, all sorts of inventions that, that touch our lives. I think that's probably a good point. I mean, there's a lot to go in with Bell. He did eventually marry Hubbard's daughter, for instance. He did. And they sold most of their interest in the company to, I guess, escape the weight of their sins and travel to Europe. (laughs) But ultimately, it did come back to them as Edison and other characters became involved in advances on the telephone. Edison, I think you said, for instance, developed the solid state, the microphone. He is the inventor of it. And Uh it... And I know from my my past readings, one of Edison's points of genius, regardless of his other character traits, is his ability to promote technology, which we've seen in modern characters like Steve Jobs. But I think this is a good point to get into that transition to Edison and Tesla. You have the Wizard of Menlo Park and Tesla, who's become our image of a mad scientist in many ways. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you should mention that that really is a very apt comparison. Edison, very much like Jobs, 
was great at recognizing the commercial potential of technology and on focusing upon it. You know, he would come up with ideas. He has he has holds or held over a thousand patents in more than anything in the U.S. And plenty of those were for devices and, and discoveries that he couldn't figure out how to market. But at the same time, he said, all right, I, I came up with this. I'm going to patent it so that should something come along, I'll be ready. And then I'll refocus my efforts on the things that I know how to bring to market. Um, I know how to make consumer electronics mm-hmm. out of, like, you know, the light bulb, for instance. One of the, one of the most revolutionizing inventions of our time. With the light bulb, he was involved not just in the invention of it and improving of the filament, but also in promoting and popularizing its use, pushing for entire cities to be wired up solely to showcase this product. Absolutely, absolutely. It, none of it could have been done without Edison. The idea of a light bulb did exist before him, but Edison took a three-pronged approach. He went ahead and took this this technology to the point where it was sustainable enough to be adopted by many consumers. You know, instead of having a light bulb work for a few seconds, he got it to work for hundreds and hundreds of hours. Mm-hmm. He came up with a system uh, by which to safely and reliably generate electricity mm-hmm. to power those light bulbs. And then on top of all that, he came up with a distribution network. Yes. So it wasn't just Edison made the light bulb, it was Edison light bulb power plant power lines and wiring people's homes to figure out a way, okay, we're going to have a full end-to-end solution here. And so really, when we think about the geniuses and visionaries who conquered the electron, he is he is certainly one of the names at the very top of the list. I mean, if you were to consider memes in the common sense used on the internet, there's a reason the light bulb is still the perennial image of ingenuity. And yeah. you touched upon the idea of utility. One of the reasons that was the Western Union had rejected the initial pitch on the telephones. They didn't even see why folks would want to convey or speak in person and converse as we're doing right now versus having the telegraph. They couldn't see how that would be in a more appealing product or easier to adapt to, more natural. Yeah, you mentioned Steve Jobs, and, and his one of his greatest talents was his ability to maintain broad vision. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the times, uh, a strongly entrenched company will lose the ability to envision what the future might look like and see what might be useful in the future. You know, there's a popularly held apocryphal story saying that IBM passed up on the computer saying that no one, there would never be a need for more than five computers anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that, that isn't quite historically accurate, but at the same time, it, it does paint a relatively reliable picture in the, you know, in the birth of the telephone, in the birth of the personal computer, and in countless other technologies. The large, large, large companies were never really the ones who were successful at bringing it to market, mostly because they were afraid of disrupting their own business. So there's always small and medium upstarts who had the ability to envision a different world who are really able to champion a new technology and really change the way we live. It's funny now because disruption has become a business model, but it yeah. comes back to that question of the people who were disruptive were not disruptive because they intended to be. That was not their agenda. They had some other right. goal in mind, and their solutions were disruptive. And I wonder if we're going about it backwards now, where we're trying to pursue change instead of letting it occur as a result of our ingenuity and our research. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see it, you can see it in everything from you know direct mail marketing to I don't know just about anything. You know, people say, oh, disrupt, 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 yeah. and, and I think they tend to use it in the idea of find a consumer who wants to say no and disrupt uh, his or her patterns and consider yeah. buying our products. Mm-hmm. But which which it's a, it's a clever idea, but it's really not the same as let's completely revolutionize the technological landscape. I certainly mm-hmm. agree with you there. 
So let's let's get to Tesla and Edison because how they intersect is fascinating. They're both remarkably different people. I think I was rereading Tesla's obituary of Edison, and it's scathing. It's not necessarily yeah. accurate, but it is scathing. It, it highlights the differences between them. Uh, Tesla writes, He had no hobby, this is of Edison after the man died, cared for no sort of amusement of any kind, and lived in utter disregard of the most elementary rules of hygiene. His method was inefficient in the extreme, for an immense ground had to be covered to get anything at all unless blind chance intervened, and at first I was almost so a sorry witness of his doings knowing that just a little theory and calculation would have saved him 90% of the labor. It goes on, but... Yeah, Tesla's really the archetype of what we think of as a, a young genius who burns bright early and, and then really uh, fades away. Is it similar um, to the, the popular... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, there's... I'm so bad with names at times, but the play Amadeus, in his depiction of Mozart and Salieri, sure. a similar narrative of... Mozart is the bright filament, and Amad- and Salieri is the jealous older. And it's so jealous funny you should say that. I was I was absolutely thinking of that movie thirty seconds ago. <laughs> uh-huh. But it's apt in a sense because it's how we view the relationship between these two. So let's get into how they met and where sure. from there. Sure. So Tesla was this flamboyant, charming, tall, well-educated uh, European technologist. And Edison, of course, uh, was already well-known. He was American. He wasn't known for being, you know, dapper or dashing, just mm-hmm. for being a genius. But for a time, they worked together, and Edison trusted Tesla uh, with some very difficult projects. Um, what actually led to their split, and it was a major split, yes. to the point where, you know, Tesla came up with his entirely separate power generation <laughs> and power distribution system, DC current. Mm-hmm. DC current. Purely, really, to spite Edison, which is a make if you can think about it. The entire, and we were talking about egotism versus altruism earlier, the entire electrical power system used by the majority of the United States, including the power that goes into our homes and is generated by power plants, travels across the country on power wires, lights everything, heats everything, turns on our TV, Etc. The whole system was invented by Tesla to get back at Edison, which is <laughs> kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Basically, Edison charged Tesla to, to take care of a project. He said he'd give him a bonus of fifty thousand dollars if he did it, which in today's dollars is about a million dollars. You know, not nothing, but not not uh, an unthinkable amount. And when Tesla succeeded, Edison stiffed him, and so Tesla just said, "Well, all right." The heck with you. I'm going out on my own. And so for years, he worked in poverty, mm-hmm. uh, trying to come up with this system to rival Edison. At one point, even going so far as to dig ditches for posts yes. for Edison's power distribution system, which is kind of a funny picture. You can just picture him toiling away under the hot sun, you know, with his shovel and trowel, just thinking, oh, man, when I get back at this guy. <laughs> Every piece I dig. Yeah. Greetings, Starfighters. It's Sean from the Rusted Robot Podcast. Join me and the Rusty crew as we break down the latest geeky movie trailers, talk about TV, comics, toys, games, casting news, and all things nerdy. Find us on all your favorite podcast apps, the ESO Network, and at therustedrobot.podbean.com. The Rusted Robot Podcast, your source for geek since 2014. The Rusted Robot Podcast. Think about it. It's a, it is remarkable. I mean, 
Some of it is perhaps a culture clash. Some of it is definitely a clash of work ethic. Edison is, is famous for the 99% sweat, 1% ingenuity form of engineering. And Tesla is, was far more methodical. Apparently, yeah, he, you write that he grew up in relatively poor circumstances, but was a star pupil. And he came up with what allegedly the first wireless transmitter for a boat that he tried pitching to the military and they at that time didn't see the value of. So in many ways, perhaps he was ahead of his time and quite deliberate, even though some of his experiments were unusual. I think later on he got involved in trying to capture lightning and x-rays. Uh-huh. Microwave death rays. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's funny when you think of him, when you think of Tesla and Edison in a room together for a time, their genius and their vision were able to work in concert, mm-hmm. but uh, eventually their each other's just gotten the better of them. And you see that, you see that story in collaborative work all the time. Mm-hmm. Even in things like the invention of the semiconductor, you know, which is a story I'm sure we probably won't talk about today. It's <laughs> a little bit more technical. Right. Um, but it, you, know, you, you see that, you see it there too, you see it everywhere. Why do you think that is? I mean, there's the obvious benefit of the partnership where the individuals provide different strengths, but why do you think it disintegrates ultimately? You know, I I had to guess, I would say, it's because coming up with this stuff is hard. Mm-hmm. You know, if it were obvious, if it were easy, it would have already been done. And so it takes a special and very dedicated type of person to come up with these sorts of ideas and breakthroughs. And that type of person is you know, by necessity, has to have the utmost belief in his or her abilities or else he'll never, you know, he'll never get to that point. And so that kind of person who has such utmost confidence and, and is able to push it to a point of success is likely by nature going to continue to believe in himself or herself. And when he's forced to work with someone else, forced to even sometimes subjugate his own desires or beliefs to another person's, I mean, that's going to rankle. I think that's one of the other fascinating elements is that there is so much, there's so much back and forth of contributions where we consider one person as the inventor. Say you look at calculus and you think, oh, Newton, but Leibniz is involved as well. And Edison even came up right. with a phonograph, but he didn't come up with what seems like the far more practical vinyl. For a person. Right. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Edison coming up with a phonograph. It, yeah. It's it's true, right? It, it's hard for for these type of leaders to cede control when they must. And Edison's Photograph Company, it went out of business not because it had any technical problems, but because Edison insisted on picking all the records that would be made. You know? He was like, yeah, this is my project, and so we're going to do Mary Had a Little Lamb, and we're going to do, you know, simple tunes. And that's not what the people wanted, so they went somewhere else. You know? And and his company, his his subsidiary, went totally out of business because he refused to let someone with an ear for music do it for him. We looked at the Apple community as the gated environment, similar to how Edison said, this is what I'll give you. But there is now more of a conversation back and forth between the customers and the company over what content they want to have available in the first place and under what means. But I think before we get too deeply into that, let's kind of look at this evolution from radio to our current circumstances with the Internet and where it's evolving. So for you, what major technology made the rev- made the radio readily available? What was the revolutionary factor there? For me personally in my life? Yeah, for you personally, and then we'll take it a bit larger to your research. Oh, well, that, I mean, those are two really different questions between my life and, and my work. I mean, I remember being you know, 13 or 14 and getting a cable modem in my house, maybe 15 or 16. I, I, I can't say the exact year, but the high school for sure. Right. And the difference between, you know, uh, a dial-up, 28-8 modem, or, or maybe not even, and uh, and having a 
cable internet available. I mean, it was hugely different. All, all of a sudden, you know, it wasn't just looking at static GeoCities pages anymore. I could actually experience uh, the world beyond text uh, from my computer, which is amazing. And it was a frontier at that point. I remember I was talking to a friend yesterday who he's, his wife, his fiance works in a library, and part of their role now is to teach digital literacy, which involves, among other things, how to navigate online and understand what to post, when to post, and what to provide where. And that was all information we discovered firsthand through dodging Buffalo, effectively, online. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. Our generation, it was all experiential knowledge, learning how to navigate to use a data term, the information superhighway, mm -hmm. what could be trusted, what couldn't be trusted. And, you know, the previous generation, our parents, our grandparents, to them, you know, they have no idea. They they they, they could believe it if they click here. They are the one millionth visitor to this site, you know, and that's something our eyes don't even see that anymore. And so the thing that people need to be taught about what those things mean and how to recognize the poisonous snakes, whereas we just sort of have learned to intuit it over the course of years of experience. Um, it is kind of interesting. I, you know, I, I, I feel fine navigating uh, the Internet myself, but if you ask me to sit down with someone who had zero computer experience and try to teach it to them, yeah. I think it would be a, a difficult and, and perhaps frustrating process. <laughs> Daunting almost. And I think in some ways radio, when it first came out, had that similar experience where there was no control. It was if you had resource and access, you could attempt to have people listen to you. and Ultimately, you get the FCC saying, you know what, we're going to take control over all of it and sell it back out. It's set proportions we will take yeah. control of it. And yeah. that's, I don't know, was there a precedent for that type of government involvement in this type of technology before? Or was this, was this revolutionary in its own sense? Was the governance at that point necessary after so much innovation? There, there wasn't exactly a precedent for that sort of government takeover and parceling. Um, but it really had to be done. Okay. And the reason was actually because of limited resources. I mean, we don't see it anymore today with, you know, broadband internet. You know, there, there is really infinite internet mm -hmm. uh, for us to be able to access any. But for our intents and purposes, uh, to the consumer, you don't need to worry about saying, oh, we're listening to in character today, so that means there's not going to be any room for oranges and new black. <laughs> um, that wasn't the case in the early days of radio. There was only so much physical radio spectrum, you know, electromagnetic wave mm -hmm. frequency spectrum that could be used to broadcast and receive messages via radio. Mm -hmm. And there was a real, a real possibility that multiple senders could try to occupy the same space on the radio dial at the same time and make it impossible to send and receive radio messages. And the people who brought this with attention were actually the U.S. Navy. Hmm. They said, wait a second, if too many people are broadcasting, you know, this is a very important communications tool, particularly for, you know, ships that are hundreds or, or more miles at sea, need to be able to send and receive messages. And if we let everyone do this willy-nilly, this is going to put lives in danger. Mm -hmm. No risk. So the Navy initially wanted to take over the whole radio spectrum. Right. And the U.S. government said, hey, that's a bridge too far, but we do recognize your concerns. So what we'll do instead is we'll make this separate dedicated agency, the FCC. They are going to parcel out bits of the radio spectrum for different organizations in different cities uh, to utilize and broadcast upon. And that way, we'll make sure we can eliminate or at least minimize interference and make sure that everyone gets to enjoy the benefits of uh, radio. 
So in a sense, the government involvement was necessary to ensure the freedom of access as well as the security that, that we gained from using this as a government communication system. It became so essential technology that we had to preserve a portion of it purely for vital information. In most political solutions, there's a middle ground. You know, some people say, oh, government can just take care of everything. Well, that's probably not the case. Government shouldn't take charge of anything. Well, that's probably not the case either. You know, mm-hmm. this, is, this is a pretty good instance where a, a measured approach of saying we're just going to shepherd this to make sure that everyone has access. Probably the best solution. Taking that forward, what's your projection on this effort now to charge for internet speed, not purely on the customer end? You know, it's not just rising so you want higher speed, give us more money, but charging content providers for premium delivery. Yeah, it, it bugs me. Personally, I, I think it, it doesn't make logical sense for these utilities to be allowed to do that. You know, I've, I've spoken to some very smart people whose opinions I regard very highly. Mm-hmm. Completely disagree with me. You know, they say it's a it's a free market solution, and we have no business regulating it. And you know, while I disagree with them, I, I respect their arguments. Um, I just think it's wrong. You know, it, to to be a public utility, you're effectively exercising monopoly power. Mm-hmm. And the government has regulated monopolies for generations for a very good reason. You know, monopolies operating unchecked end up basically. A, a, taking monopoly profits and, and harming the economy as a whole and, and consumers. How, how do you think, should this come to pass, it would direct or drive innovation going forward? You know, one one thing that has happened time and again in the past, particularly in the world of telecommunication, is just that, people finding gray area ways to circumvent a monopolistic system, and then the, those initial forays are shut down by usually by the courts. They do inspire innovation and competition in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at telephony in the 1950s and 60s, it was Ma Bell. That was it. Mm-hmm. And telephone freakers started messing around a little bit with the system, trying to figure out how things worked and how they could get around it. The holes they found in the system inspired Ma Bell and AT&T to improve their own technology. Mm-hmm. And then those technological advances opened the doors to competitors like MCI, Sprint, etc. You know, some of them are no longer here today, but who have broadened the telephonic landscape. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think it's always going to be an ebb and a flow. And, you know, to quote Princess Leia from Star Wars... You know, the tighter you close your fist, the more uh, people will slip through your grasp. Mm-hmm. And it does bring us to pop culture, partly to discussing how podcasts have evolved out of all this, and also to the idea of just on-demand electronic technology. I mean, we I'm sitting here with an audio recorder, an iPad, a computer, a phone, and it's surreal in a sense that I have all these things running off of the same base technology, but just that they exist, mm-hmm. one, and two, that I feel like I need them when I need them. <laughs> years ago, the, the, none of them existed, and people lived just fine. Yeah. So how do we? How are we taught to need need and want these things? And are they, from your experience, from your research, are they fulfilling new needs and new desires that we didn't have before? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're born into a world, and we accept our reality for what it is. There's no question there. So there are some people who are dreamers and visionaries, and think, "I wonder where we could push this envelope. I wonder how we could get beyond, you know, in the '70s." five channels of broadcast television and, and expose people to more. And, and now we have that. And there are a small number of people who say, hey, you know, I, I think I would have preferred it in a different time. And mm-hmm. they live very simply. They don't have a television or they don't have a cable or they don't, you know, this, that, or the other. They, they get themselves off the grid. And so, you know, the 
most of those kinds of people are really the end of the bell curve. And I think for the majority of us, you know, we're born into a world and we accept what there is around us and we utilize it and learn to adapt to it. And if it were taken away from us, I think we would be very surprised. <laughs> Have you seen Revolution? I know we've talked about it previously. You're familiar with the premise? Yeah, right? I, I, I'm absolutely familiar with it, yeah. You, you find it a realistic take. For folks who haven't seen it, the basic premise is that we lose all electricity power and are forced to live a life in a year or timeline similar to our current one without any of that. And the story, being a J.J. Abrams story, veers off into why all that is, but the basic premise of, dear God, we have no power, now what? Right. Is the starting point. Do you find it realistic? J.J. Abrams is a visionary in his own way. You know, if you look at law, I, I, I can't necessarily speak to it because just like I've never lived in a world without any electrical power, I've also never been deserted on an island after a plane crash. So, you know, someone's vision of what it would be like, mm -hmm. I have to, I think the best I can do is use my powers of logical deduction and say, do I think that's right? You know, but, but I, I would certainly believe that if um, we lost all electricity in America for good, I, I would have to imagine there'd be, unfortunately, pretty high mortality at the beginning. I mean, very few of us live with access to drinkable water that we can access without the use of electrical power. Um, very few of us live close to or have the skills to find and cultivate our own food sources. You know, distribution would be nil without, without power. So, I, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's actually, if you get deep down that rabbit hole, it's actually a, a pretty good thought. It's, it is fascinating because you start to see how impermanent a lot of the technology is. I know the, the rate of decay, for instance, in all of our high-end technology is fairly quick, and even gasoline and concrete start to break down within a hundred years plus. You also mentioned, I think we were talking the Prestige. How did you want to discuss that? I enjoy it as a, a piece of fantasy, as a piece of fiction, the prestige for people who haven't seen it, the Hugh Jackson film, it sort of blends electromagnetic phenomena and invention with the world of illusion and magic. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I'll just leave it and say it, it's a fun movie. It's hard enough a feel that uh, <laughs> as a, a work of science fiction, mm -hmm. I, uh, I enjoy it for what it is. But having just written a, a very factual and, I hope, entertaining It's on a different scale. Do you do you tend to read sci-fi, and if so, do you prefer what's been considered? I think is it the most scale, or taken off of that, the hard sci-fi? It's a you know I I read just about everything. Okay. I have to say I, uh, I I don't care how new it is. I don't care how old it is. I don't care what genre it is. I just read a lot. Mm -hmm. I read a great nonfiction account of deep water scuba divers, mm -hmm. uh, wreck divers, in the early 1990s, in the days when nitrox and trimix were brand new, and people were just starting to breathe things other than oxygen and wreck dive at depths below 200 feet. Mm -hmm. You know, that was, that was great. I loved it. Um, I have been reading a lot of fiction lately. I just read uh, The Fault in Our Stars. Yes. And I love that. So I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place. If it's, if it's a book and you gave it to me, I'm, I'm going to sit down and read it. It's, and it's fascinating. It's one of the reasons I love books like yours, because there's so much that I know bits and pieces of. Even rereading Edison, third grade, I had to do a presentation on him thoroughly in depth. And it was fascinating rediscovering that character and learning more about him. And seeing now how alike he is to folks like Steve Jobs, and even, fascinatingly enough, to the individuals on Shark Tank, which I don't know if you've seen, but it's a fascinating show, how 
mm-hmm. that entrepreneurial mind works, how they look at inventions and go, is this actionable? Is this something we can make into a business? And you do yeah. have to see that push and pull and that conversation sometimes stilted between the folks who conceive of an idea and the ones who wish to make it something workable. Yeah, it's funny, it's funny you mention that, actually. You, know, you, you asked about the vision behind this book earlier, and, and Dr. Derek Chung, like the, my co-author and really the visionary behind it, you know, he, he looked at this book and wanted to make it something that would be accessible to all sorts of people. You know, if you're interested in business, this book is for you. If you're interested in science, this book is for you. If you're interested in nonfiction, this book is for you. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in, you know, scoundrels of history, this book is for you. And if you just want to know how this stuff around your house works, this book is for you. And, and you know, as you just said, you know, he's, he was really the guy who had the vision, the guy who laid down the roadmap for this project. And he actually authored an, an edition of it all by himself in, in Chinese a number of years ago. Um, and, and then he came to me with it, you know, about three or four years ago at this point and said, hey, uh, this is what I want done. This is how it should look. Let's work on this together and I'll, I'll direct your process. Let's, uh, let's make something with this. Do you find that an enjoyable partnership as a nonfiction writer? Is that kind of a fun method for you to work with a subject matter expert or someone who is a scholar of material and figure out how to tell? It's the awesome. Story? It's great. It's hard. Yes. It's definitely hard. It's like raising a child. You know, you've got people competing viewpoints, inevitably going to disagree times about what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but this book, Conquering the Electron, it's actually my second nonfiction book uh, in which I'm the co-author. Right. The first one was Billy the Hill and the Jump Hook, mm-hmm. which I wrote with a former number one NBA draft pick who mm-hmm. played in the 50s and 60s and broke the color line at the University of Utah. You know, a very different guy from me. Right. And the two of us sat down together, and, and we wrote a book together. And so, you know, naturally there are differences, but boy, I, mean, I learned a lot about the world of basketball mm-hmm. and about pre-Shalom-Tech America from working with him. And from getting to work with, with Derek here, I learned awful, awful lot about the world <laughs> of science, see. business, and technology. And it's it gives you a different perspective now on how all of that moves going forward, on the processes involved. I've been watching Google for many years, and it's fascinating because you see the amount of sheer effort and scratch up, go back to the board, try it again, that results in something small and clean. And as a writer, you see that and you know that from your own work, but it's always fascinating to step outside of yourself and observe and engage in the lives of other people. I think for me that's part of the fun of this is I find the people who tell the stories and the folks who write them to be fascinating. And it's always interesting to hear what drew them into the narrative. So let me ask you, it's a two-part question again. Mm-hmm. What did you learn? What was your major takeaway having written the book? And what is the takeaway ultimately that we as the audience will get from this experience, from your book? Sure. You know, I took away a lot as a writer. Uh, from this book. You know, I've been writing nonfiction uh, for newspapers across the country for almost a decade now. Um, and I, I found from working on this project that I got to learn a lot about how to report on a subject with which I am not previously intimately familiar and for, for which the readership may not be intimately familiar. Mm-hmm. And to bring it to a place where where everyone walks away happy. You know, this is a hard thing to, to find the middle ground where, all right, we don't want it to be too technical. We certainly don't want to dumb it down. We want people walking away from this book going, wow. Whether uh, whether they knew science or not, we want them to go, wow, I get it. I understand how all this stuff works. I see how every one of these inventions is inexorably linked to one another. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's pretty cool. That's certainly the way I feel now 
walking away from this finished project. And it's how I hope everyone who reads this book will feel as well. For you, what was the primary challenge in both learning the technology and learning how to describe or explain it? You know, that was really part of the partnership that I enjoyed and appreciated. Mm-hmm. You know, Derek is an unbelievably smart, smart guy. And he has a real knack for simplifying technology and explaining mm-hmm. even the most complicated hardware and processes mm-hmm. very simply, very patiently, which I appreciated. So for me, you know, what would have been the largest hurdle you know, my background is in economics. Yeah. The business end made lots of sense, but hard science is not something I studied since high school. Mm-hmm. So that probably would have been the largest hurdle for me. You know, you asked about co-authorship. One of the real joys of getting to work on this project with a partner and mentor is that you know, he made it really easy for me for me to understand all that was going on, you know, behind the scenes and, and, and in this world. And hopefully, uh, this book, Conquering the Electron, will do that for everyone who reads it as well. I look forward to seeing the whole piece out. It'll be, it's available on Amazon currently under pre-order. Yep, that's right. It's pre-ordering right now. Um, books will ship probably at the very beginning of October. Yeah, and from what I've read, I, my dad's a history buff, so I guess I'm a little biased in this kind of stuff, but I love learning the unspoken parts of it and the parts that get buried away. And I love people who've discovered fun letters and correspondences like those because they give depth to the individuals and the characters involved. They make them real and human again. And for me, that's the fun of this. Though I, I appreciate you taking the time from your day to indulge in that little bit of entertainment for me and for our audience. Oh, this is great. So that's all until 2019. To learn more about Eric, you can find him on Instagram at Barack Obama, that's B-R-A-C-H-O-B-A-M-A, or on Twitter at Writes. You can also find his newest book, Double Lives, True Tales of the Criminals Next Door, on Amazon and other stores online. As for UB Tigers, we'll be launching our Facebook page soon, so keep your eyes open for that. In the meantime, of course, you're always welcome to find us at www.patreon.com slash tigers. That's with a Y. See you all in 2019. So that's it for the show. If you like what you hear, you can leave us a review on Google Play, Stitcher iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app, or show your support on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash Sir. And, of course, if you have a tale of your own to share, you can write to us at feedusyourtales at com. That's Tigers of the Y. See you all next time. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.